Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, a conversation with Dr. Luciana Borio, InQtel vice president and former FDA acting chief scientist, and Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner. They joined me for CNBC's Healthy Returns live stream on March 10th, 2021, to talk about what we've learned over the past year where we are in the pandemic recovery, the vaccine rollout, and the eternal question, when will things go back to normal? Here's our conversation. So I want to start with you guys um, talking about the CDC guidance this week. I think, you know, it was really highly anticipated. Um, people wanting to know when we can get back to normal after we'll, we're fully vaccinated. And Dr. Borio, maybe we'll start with you. Did you think the guidance was what you hoped it would be? Did it go far enough? Did it go too far? What did you think? I thought it was a good start. It gives uh, fully vaccinated individuals a chance to uh, resume life a little bit. Uh, I think it's particularly important for, you know, be able to be with family members and small social groups. I wish that CDC had been a little bit more uh, forward looking with respect to travel because we know so much about the safety of travel, especially if it's about traveling to go see a family and be done in a, in a safe manner where there's no really socialization in indoor uh, public spaces, for example, uh, restaurants, bars. But, you know, a lot of people to travel to see loved ones, I, I, I would have hoped they would have gone a little bit further than they did. Mm. Dr. Gali, what did you think? Well, look, I think it's going to be difficult for CDC to give prescriptive guidance for individuals to follow. It's one thing to have very prescriptive guidance when it comes to businesses, municipalities, because it could be enforced with regulation. I think people are people and they're going to do what they want to do. And a lot of people now, especially people who've been vaccinated, um, feel like they're at less risk because they are at less risk. And I think the guidance needs to be more general and practical. People who have been fully vaccinated are, redu- are at reduced risk of contracting COVID, at reduced risk of having a bad outcome from COVID. But reduced risk doesn't mean no risk. And people should still be prudent. They should still try to wear masks where they can in a high prevalence environment. They should still be careful when they're in settings where they could be exposed to the virus. And they should be particularly careful when they're in settings where there are vulnerable people who could contract the virus because we don't fully understand how much the vaccine reduces transmission. We believe it reduces transmission, but we don't know the magnitude of that. That's the kind of sort of high level, I think, more practical statements that would be helpful to consumers. But trying to be prescriptive about, you know, you can hug one grandchild, but not a grandchild from you can hug your grandchild from your daughter, but not your grandchild from your son at the same time. That's just not going to work. Um, so we need to get to more, I think, general, practical, flexible type of recommendations. Mm, Dr. Borio, I have to go back to the travel question because I- I've really been wondering about this. You know, my family lives in California, my, my parents, and they're fully vaccinated. They're like still double masking and, you know, they're very conservative. But like, should should they feel comfortable getting on a plane? What do you think the travel guidance should be? Yes, Meg. So I think that, you know, it's people have to make those decisions for themselves and assume their level of risk. And everybody has a little bit of risk credit in the bank. And you have to use it in a way that is meaningful to you. But I do think that, you know, we know now that traveling with masks and being very careful about the surroundings, especially for people that are vaccinated, is going to be fairly, fairly safe as long as they don't go to the destination and, again, go into an indoor place to socialize in a bar or restaurant, a higher risk activity. Because again, like Dr. Gottlieb said, you know, because one, the vaccination reduces the risk, but it doesn't, you still can get it and you still can spread it. 
so it's not a zero zero risk uh, reduction. So we need to to I think that the travel would have been reasonable, and I think in that way it's a little bit of a missed opportunity because people really are very much in need of those family connections uh, at this moment. Just to pick up on what Dr. Borio said, I think that the the more that CDC and I understand, you know, CDC needs to be in a certain place with respect to recommendations, and they're gonna they're gonna represent a more conservative um, end of the spectrum in terms of what general guidance is and what behavior is, because we need someone to anchor us after all. You know, but getting to Dr. Borio's um, observations, I think the more that CDC is out of step where with where people generally are and what we know they're going to do, the more that the guidance isn't going to really become part of how people factor into their something that they factor into their consideration. So I think it's important that it also be practical, um, that they're not too far out of step where people's uh, sort of aspirations are and where their behavior is. And the reality is the public rightly senses that the overall vulnerability of the public has been reduced. It's not universal. It's not across all different demographics. We still have a lot of pockets of high-risk individuals that haven't been vaccinated. But vulnerability is coming down. And as vulnerability comes down, that's going to be a measure, that metric that we look at, not just prevalence, but what is the overall vulnerability of the population? Mm. We've got a lot of amazing questions from the audience for you guys. And uh, I'm going to start with one that we got from multiple people. So people really want your thoughts on this. And Dr. Gottlieb, I'll start with you. And I also want to hear Dr. Borio's thoughts. Um, they ask, what is your view on delaying the second shot so more people get a first dose more quickly like the UK has done? Dr. Gottlieb, what do you think? Yeah, look, I don't I don't think we should be doing that. I don't think we fully understand what the durability is of the immunity without the second dose with the mRNA vaccines. Those are the vaccines that are two-dose vaccines. They've been studied as two-dose vaccines. There is protection after the first dose. The data sort of demonstrates that. It appears to be better in younger people than older people. But I think we should be delivering the second dose. I think it's also going to be hard to take a system that's been geared towards delivering two doses now, where we've kind of set up this elaborate infrastructure to do that, and suddenly either delay the second dose or say we're going to figure out when we're going to give you the second dose down the road. Just trying to rejigger the system to orient it around the delivery of one dose would take weeks, and it's really not going to extend the supply and time um, to actually get more vaccines in arms. I mean, this is something we wanted to contemplate this. We should have done it two months ago. The reality is I think we're right on the cusp of there being more supply than demand. I think as we get into April, we're going to have ample supply and there's going to be general availability of the vaccine. So we'll basically be doing this for this three-week period when we're still in this kind of situation where we're rationing the vaccine and we wouldn't even get it implemented in time. So I think the, the opportunity to have this debate has come and gone. Hmm. Dr. Borio, your thoughts on that and also... Uh, Scott's prediction that we're going to all be able to make a vaccine appointment by April. Do you think that's realistic? Well, I completely agree with him uh, on this position about the second dose. I don't think we should be delaying that at all. And we know that the, the first dose affords a level of protection, but the, the second dose really kind of cinches that immune response. And this is particularly important in the setting where we have emerging variants uh, but, you know, that we need that extra protection. So this is not the time to undo a very sound scientific policy that we have in place. Um, when we're going to have a vaccine for all, I guess, you know, I was really happy to see this morning that Alaska is the first uh, state to offer vaccine to all uh, who are 16 years of age or older. And uh, I'm very hopeful. I don't know exactly. I don't, I'm not willing to make a strong bet on a specific date, Meg. Where we're getting closer and closer each day, and that's just wonderful. 
Definitely. Um, Dr. Borio, what are your thoughts on vaccines for kids? How important is um, getting kids vaccinated? When do you think a realistic timeline for that might be? You know, that's, that's a question that my kids ask me every day because they really want to be vaccinated as soon as possible. Aww. Maybe because, you know, they they live in a household where we're very much pro-vaccine and they are being left out because of their age. So, um, well, and, and availability right now. But um, so, you know, there are about 73 million uh, children and adolescents in America. So we de- do need to, to, to vaccinate kids sooner than later. And the companies have now enrolled um, uh trials that are studying the vaccine in uh, kids that are 12 years of age and older. And I think that by the fall, we'll be able to have uh, more likely vaccines that are authorized for that age group, and then soon to follow vaccines in in the younger children as well. So uh, it can come too soon. There's a huge urgency to be able to begin immunizing children, especially as the vaccine supply um, becomes, you know, is resolved and we have ample supply. We shouldn't be you know, we have to move very aggressively to be able to get vaccine to children as soon as we have that data from these clinical trials that are being done. Just to, just to build on um, Dr. Borio's point, I, I think, you know, there's going to be a policy call that has to be made here. Obviously, the, the science and the medicine is going to inform what we do. and We need to have the trials that demonstrate that the vaccines are safe and effective in that population, the 12 and older overpopulation. Pfizer's fully enrolled the trial. Um, Moderna is currently enrolling the trial, as best I recall. Um, and so we will have data in the fall from trials looking at 12 and over, but ultimately it's going to be a policy call. And I think the policy call is going to be what social compartment do we want to put the vaccine into? Into Do we put it into a high school age population, get it in ninth through 12th grade? Do we try to put it into middle school, junior high school? I don't think it's going to be available for 12 and under. I'm not, I don't think we're going to be putting the vaccine into grade school age kids this year. It's a 2022 event at the earliest, assuming you know something dramatic doesn't change with the virus. But I think the, the real debate is going to be around high school. Um, the Pfizer vaccine, as you know, I'm on the board of Pfizer, is approved for 16 and over. So it's already partially in the high school age population. The question is, are we going to fully put it in that high school age population? That would be the most likely social compartment because that's where we've seen outbreaks in high school settings, more outbreaks in that setting. We know that older kids are more vulnerable to the infection, more likely to catch and transmit the infection. So that would be the most likely place to put it. I suspect, Meg, if I'm looking out to the future, I think some of the hesitation um, is probably going to be ASIP. I think that this is going to be a difficult decision for the group that advises CDC around uh, pediatric and adolescent vaccinations on whether they're going to make a recommendation to do that. And and I would think that that's going to be where the debate ends up focusing around what ASIP does with, with, with respect to that recommendation, whether they make the recommendation for back to school um, or whether we just have the data to support the recommendation in our back pocket and see how the school year goes. Hmm. ASAP being the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, that group that votes on, um, you know, what vaccines should be used in which settings. Um, Dr. Borio, I- I'm curious your thoughts on that. Um, and-, and I guess just to make sure I understand the implications of the ASIP uh, weighing in here. I mean, if they said, okay, we've got the data, it supports use in kids, you know, 12 to 16 or, or whatever it is, 12 to 15. Um, does that then trigger schools possibly requiring the vaccine for kids to come in? I mean, what what are the implications of that? Well, and I think it'd be very difficult, Meg, for um, for these vaccines to be required because we have to remember they're still considered investigational vaccines by the U.S. FDA. They are authorized under an emergency use authorization, but they're not fully approved. 
So until uh, there's a, and, you know, vaccine mandates are already such a controversial issue. I hope that we don't have to really, we, we, we you know, vaccines uh, are such a, an incredible good that we ought to be able to have people willing, <laughs> being willing to take them to protect themselves and protect their loved ones. So I hope we don't end up in a situation of mandate. And I can't imagine that that would be the case. Another question from the audience, Dr. Gali, we'll go to you with this. Um, when will we know about transmissibility of COVID-19 from vaccinated to unvaccinated people? When will we know? I think there are some hints maybe that the vaccines do reduce transmission. When will we know for sure and the extent to which they do? Yeah, I think the conventional wisdom right now is that they reduce transmission, that we've seen enough data to support the concept that they're reducing transmission. It's just a question of the magnitude of the reduction in transmission of infection. And obviously, these vaccines end up having substantial impact on reducing the ability of people um, who get subclinical infection to spread the infection, to spread the SARS-2 infection. That's going to be a profound public health tool. These vaccines uh, gain a, a, a substantial public health importance if they're able to actually reduce transmission. I think a lot of the data that's going to fully inform this question is going to be real world evidence. And a lot of it's probably going to come out of Israel where they're actually um, looking at this question, collecting data on a prospective basis. And they have good data capture. They have now uh, a largely vaccinated population. So I would think that we're going to turn the card on some studies in the next four to six weeks that's going to more definitively answer this question, whether it answers it to the point that you're going to get some language into the labels, another question. But I think in terms of informing sort of the public health perception of the vaccines and how they can be used most effectively, we're going to have an answer within the next four to six weeks around some of these questions. More definitive answer, not a final answer. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Borio, another question from the audience we got multiple versions of <coughs> for you. Do you expect COVID-19 shots to become a yearly vaccine like flu shots? What do you think? Yeah, I don't know if it's going to be an yearly um, vaccine shot, but I expect, I fully expect that we'll need to have booster shots periodically to be able to maintain a high level of uh, protection. And what about the variants? I mean, how how concerned are you, um, Dr. Boyle, I'll go back to you on that, and then to Dr. Gottlieb, that we will need to revamp the vaccines for the variants or that we'll need boosters to stay ahead of them and just keep our immune response high? Sure. So the variants are a big unknown. And right now, I think the evidence points that to, to the, the fact that these vaccines remain really protective, highly protective um, against most of the variants. And the numbers in the U.S. are fairly low for the variants. But we need to, you know, it really is a race to vaccinate right now. We need to be able to va vaccinate as many people as possible. And I want to you know, say, Meg, that a lot of people think that because they already had COVID, that they are now protected from subsequent infection of the variants. And the data does not suggest that for the variants. You know, if the, the immune response generated by the vaccine is uh, protective to a certain extent, but the immune response generated by a natural infection with the more ancestral original strains did not seem to afford much protection. So it's really critical for people that have had COVID to also seek vaccination. Mm -hmm. Another question from the audience, I'll send this one to you, Dr. Gottlieb. Um, how likely do you think it'll be we can develop a universal vaccine against COVID that will not need updating and will effectively protect against both future and current variants that may emerge? Yeah, I mean, just stepping back on the variants a little bit, I think one of the um, unknown questions, and I, I'd be curious, Dr. Boris' uh, opinion on this, is how much B117 is going to crowd out some of the variants. Is there is there partial protection against the variants or more or, or 
um, more significant protection against the variants of people who've been infected with B117, because B117 is going to become the majority of the infection in the United States. And the question is, does some of the uh, do some of the viral epitopes on B117 provide more robust immunity against the variants? And I think that that's a question that's getting debated right now. And that'll help sort of inform whether or not these variants, how much of a foothold they can gain in this country. Right now, they're not that prevalent when you look at the sequencing data. I think we're doing a reasonable job sequencing samples now so we can have a sense of how prevalent they are. And there's not it's not clear that they're more fit. It may be the case that 1351 and P1 um, gain a foothold in populations because they're able to pierce prior immunity and people who've been infected already are able to get reinfected. And that's the advantage that they have, but they're not necessarily more contagious in the way 117 is. I think, you know, what you, what you would try to do in developing a new variant vaccine is try to develop a consensus sequence. So develop a mRNA sequence that codes for the production of a protein that bakes in a lot of the different variation that we've seen in the virus. You wouldn't just develop a new variant vaccine for 1351 or P1. You'd try to include as many aspects of the new viral epitopes being expressed by these, vari- these, these new variants as possible to the extent you can. I mean, it becomes complex to come up with a, a, a synthetic sequence that codes for a protein that has that level of complexity. So it wouldn't necessarily be a universal um, vaccine, but whatever, whatever you do come up with with respect to a variant vaccine is going to try to bake in a lot of different um, aspects of the changes that the virus has undergone, as many as possible. So it's not just going to be the 1351 strain turned into a vaccine. It's going to be some some hybrid. I think we're likely to see a situation where a lot of people do end up getting another vaccine this fall, either a booster of the existing vaccines, so they have peak, peak um, immune protection heading into the fall-winter COVID season when we're likely to see this virus try to reemerge, or if the trials are done and they demonstrate that the new variant vaccines are safe and effective and provide more robust protection from the, the old Wuhan strain, the wild-type strain, as well as the new variants, maybe those vaccines are substituted in. Um, I think one of the advantages of that and the reason why public health officials might sort of push in that direction is it kind of gets everyone on the same schedule. It cleans, it cleans up what we've gone through right now, which is that everyone's been vaccinated at a different time. I mean, the most vulnerable people were vaccinated first, so their immunity will be waning in the fall, the winter, if, if the immunity from these vaccines don't persist for a long period of time. And maybe the younger, healthier people will be vaccinated closer to the fall. You'll probably want to get everyone on a predictable schedule if we have to reboost every year. And this fall will provide an opportunity to do that. At the very least, I think we're going to be revaccinating the vulnerable, the most vulnerable population heading into the fall and the winter. Hmm. Um, another question about vaccines, and I have one more on vaccines, and then there's lots of questions about what life is going to look like you know, sort of going forward, what the vaccines will enable. So, uh, Dr. Borio, for you, um, how should we interpret the, the reactions to the vaccines? Um, I was talking with Monsef Slawi from uh, the leader of Operation Warp Speed, who's now not doing that anymore, but um, he got his vaccine. He said he had a really strong reaction to the second one, and he was like, yay, a, a great immune response. So if people feel a strong reaction after the second dose in particular of the mRNA vaccines, is that a good thing? And what does it mean if they don't get a strong response after the second dose? I know. I think I don't know for sure. I, I mean, these vaccines are extraordinarily uh, effective. And I, um, I know that we like to think that 
if we get a little sore the next day, that it's because it's getting you know better immune system response. I'm not sure that's the case, but it still feels good. That's how I interpreted my reactions to my second dose. It felt like a really good workout, and now I'm sore the next day. If you're very accomplished, <laughs> but, yeah, um, a good workout for your immune system. I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't interpret too much from the you know the reaction you get to the vaccine on the robustness of the immune response you're deriving. I remember when I was going through chemotherapy, I didn't lose my hair, and I was very worried that it meant the chemotherapy wasn't working. And I found the one study that correlated outcomes uh, in the cancer I had with with people who didn't lose their hair from the chemotherapy, and I remember it had me really worried. I wouldn't I wouldn't um, correlate, you know, how you sort of re- respond to the vaccine with what what level of immune protection you're getting, because the reality is when you look at the clinical data. Um, most people in the trials didn't develop a strong reaction to the vaccines. And so most people found it fairly tolerable. I want to ask you both about um, hesitancy or questions people may have about getting the vaccines. I've seen that maybe vaccine hesitancy is not the right word to be using around this, but for folks who are not lining up and, and you know thinking about moving to Alaska to get their vaccine now, um, what do you expect that to start to to look like? When do you think you know we'll hit that threshold that Dr. Gottlieb has talked about, where we go from you know it being a supply problem to a demand problem? And and what do you think is happening now to to work on that? And, and will it succeed, Dr. Borio? Maybe we'll start with you. Yeah. So the the Biden administration um, has expressed a strong uh, intent in launching a very robust communications campaign to be able to target the vaccine, the different components, the vaccine hesitancy to the different groups. We know now that they come in very many different shapes and forms. It's not just one type of vaccine anxiety or hesitancy. Uh, And it will take a lot of work to be able to get people to roll up their sleeves. One interesting study, for example, showed that the hesitancy that is perceived to exist in uh, people of color, a lot of it is actually linked to the perceived lack of access to a vaccine. So people don't think they can have access. They say that they are more hesitant to get the vaccine. And um, and they're going to be working on all that. So I'm confident, I'm hopeful that we will, uh, no, we're not going to be able to eliminate it completely, but we'll be able to reduce the degree of hesitancy going forward. As more people become vac- are vaccinated, more people have good stories to tell, society begins to reopen more fully. Um, you know, I think people will want to to be part of this 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 deal too, to get vaccinated. Hmm. Dr. Gottlieb? Yeah, look, I think um, Dr. Burr makes an excellent point about access. I think we need to find uh, ways to simplify access, especially in harder to reach communities. You know, just open up vaccination sites that don't require an appointment. People can just show up. You know, a lot of people have difficulty getting online, difficulty scheduling an appointment because they don't know what their schedule is going to look like. Their work doesn't allow them to come nine to five. And so I think we need to make it easier for people in communities where we know people have more obstacles um, you know, sort of going online, scheduling an appointment to be, just be able to show up and get a vaccine, P- pushing it out to some of the big box stores and the community pharmacies, I think is going to address some of that. Uh, so I, I don't think that the component that's hesitant is as big as we think it is. I think it's more um, a component of people where it needs to be a little bit more convenient, a little bit more accessible, and we'll get better uptake rates. You know, if you look at last year, we vaccinated about 125 million Americans for the flu vaccine. I think that that's your sort of target population, 125 million adults. I think we'll get there. I think we'll get above it. I think once we get to 150 million adults vaccinated, and I think we could get there, it's going to be hard. Every every percent above that, we're going to really have to struggle for. And we haven't really invested in educating people about this vaccine and stimulating demand because we didn't have enough vaccine to satisfy 
the existing demand. There was way more demand than supply. We're going to start to try to stimulate demand, but I worry it's a little late. I think, you, you know, you needed to be doing this all the way through. It's not something you can just turn on. These messages needed to be woven through all the way through the process. And so I worry that as we get into May, we may find vaccination rates start to really come down because remember, we're going to be vaccinating a less vulnerable population against the backdrop of rapidly declining prevalence in the summertime. Um, and so people may not be as, you know, um, likely to come out and get vaccinated. A lot of people, a lot of younger people who will now be eligible say, you know what, maybe I'll wait until the fall to get vaccinated. So I think we're going to run into a situation where it's going to get harder to vaccinate as we head into the summer. We're going to have to do more to try to stimulate demand. Hmm. Well, we've got another viewer question from somebody who I think pays a lot of attention when you talk, Dr. Gottlieb, because this is very specific. And I've heard you say this. Um, can Dr. Gottlieb explain his view that our path is nonlinear? That's a Dr. Gottlieb phrase. And his concerns about next fall and winter and the possible need to reinstate precautions. Why would those vaccinated need to be concerned about planning in-person events and pulling back from mass gatherings in December and January? Is this concern only if there are new variants? That's from Susan Ellingstad. Yeah, I mean, when I say it's nonlinear, it's that I think the spring's going to continue to improve. Um, you know, we'll probably go out and take our masks off sooner than we should, but we're Americans. <laughs> we do that. And the summer, I think, is, rel- is going to be relatively um, quiet with respect to this infection. I think prevalence is likely to decline and people who are worried about it are likely to be vaccinated. So people will feel comfortable going out and reengaging in normal activity. I think there's a lot of pent up demand to try to do normal things again. But, you know, as we head into the, the late fall and the winter, this is going to resurge. We're going to see virus circulate again. Um, maybe it doesn't become a raging epidemic across the country. I don't think it will. But we're going to see pockets of outbreak and we're going to see prevalence levels increase. And I think, you know, notwithstanding the fact that vulnerable people will hopefully be vaccinated and we may even revaccinate people so they have more immunity heading into the winter, there will be new variants. They might pierce some of that immunity better than the current variants are piercing the immunity. And there'll be a lot of people who won't be uh, vaccinated as well. And it's going to spread among them. Kids are unlikely to be vaccinated. There might be outbreaks in schools. So I think there could be enough infection in the late fall and the winter that we reimpose some measures. I don't think we're going to close things down again. We might, we're not going to mandate masks again, but you could see recommendations for wearing masks. You could see limitations on things like bars or, or, you know, restaurants, um, precautions taken, distancing reimposed, things like that. I think you could see holiday parties in December canceled. I don't think anyone's going to be jamming 200 people into a small room in the back of a restaurant for a holiday party on December 20th. I think we're going to be doing things differently this winter um, implementing more respiratory precautions in how we go about doing our work. I, I could see fourth quarter board meetings being canceled and being Zoom meetings. So I think it's nonlinear in that sense. I don't think we could say, you know, it's going to get normal um, by Christmas time. I think Christmas time may be the time when we're starting to, you know, slow down a little bit and take some caution. Mm. Dr. Borio, do you agree with with that outlook? And then I guess my question is, when do we get out of that cycle of like summers are great, winters are kind of terrible again? Like when do we just like go back to real normal? Does that ever happen? Yeah, I, I it will happen. It absolutely will happen. I can tell you that. I but I agree that there's not like one magic thing that that will happen. And the sooner we, you know, we vaccinate the the if we can, everybody's exhausted. But we can keep the masks on for a little longer, if we can avoid the congregate settings a little longer. We're so close, so close, I think. Uh, and I'm, I'm very hopeful that, you know, we, we, I'm hopeful, really optimistic that 
fall and winter, depending on how much vaccination we have, uh, how much vac- actual vaccinations, not vaccines, we have um, headed into the fall, that we'll be able to manage it. And it will begin to, to feel like this crisis is, is over. And, and hopefully, you know, by early in, uh, next year, we'll um, feel like our lives are, you know, traumatized, but back to normal. The trauma is going to last a little longer. I mean, I think it's incredible what we has, have gone as a, as a globe and as a nation. The other piece of this is whether we get a small molecule inhibitor of viral replication that's non-toxic and effective. That could be a real game changer in how we approach this and how we reduce risk. And you reported on this on, on the air the other day. We've, we haven't even baked that into any of our considerations. And it's a real possibility we turn over the card. There's a, the number of several products in late stage development um, that could prove to be safe and effective in, in the treatment of, uh, of COVID and prevention of progression. So that would be a real game changer if we can get that heading into the fall or the winter. Well, thank you for watching my reporting. Uh, one of the, the more advanced molecules there, of course, is Merck's molnupiravir. Um, you said non-toxic. I mean, some folks were worried that it could be mutagenic, m- meaning it could potentially cause cancer, although Merck said in an update over the weekend that, that it didn't look like that it was. Um, do you think that that uh, compound will, will succeed or one from Atia that's in phase two, partnered with Roche. Um, you know, is this kind of a near-term thing? Can we actually get there? Well, I think we're going to turn over the car on these trials. Um, the Merck compound, I think it failed the Ames test. That's why it had that sort of cloud over it. Um, but it looks active. Uh, you have Fuji um, studying their drug in a big phase three trial. They're going to turn over the car. They, they put it in the right setting, which was early disease. And so we'll finally have a definitive answer around that. That compound, the one that you mentioned, the T, I think those are the three furthest along where you're going to turn over cards on definitive trials that could, you know, yield a result that answers the question whether or not any one of these can work. So, you know, it's possible. I haven't followed the data closely enough, but this isn't a virus that's so complex that replicates in a way that we shouldn't be able to drug it. You know, there's always the question of being able to interfere with viral replication in ways that don't have off-target effects um, on human biology. But this should be a druggable target. I think we will figure out a way to get a potent small molecule inhibitor of viral replication in the setting of this coronavirus at some point, And we could be for the fall. I guess I'll just ask, you know, for, for some final thoughts from you both, Dr. Borio, you know, what would you like to leave folks with? <laughs> we are so close to victory. So let's not, let's hang in there for a little longer. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, coming back um, in the future, Meg, so we can talk about something that is not COVID related. So that's my goal for the next year. I would just echo Dr. Borio's thoughts. I, I think this is a this is the month that we sit at the cusp of two paradigms. One, the raging epidemic we went through in February. And two, I think April, May, June are going to look very good. And we just need to try to be cautious in other months so we don't take too much infection into the summer and, and you know, sort of snatch away some of the uh, some of the victories that we should be able to gain this summertime. That was Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and CNBC contributor. He was joined by Dr. Luciana Borio, InQtel vice president and former FDA acting chief scientist at CNBC's Healthy Returns live stream on March 10th, 2021. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. For information on upcoming virtual events and how you can participate, please visit cnbcevents.com. I'm Meg Terrell. Thanks for listening.